गुड इवनिंग बैक आई गॉट वाटर दिस वीक आई एम एक्साइटेड टू बी हियर टूनाइट but wasn't that song um you know as i was studying this and going through this you know god was just ministering to me you know what was you know basically the words of that song and that's really what like we're talking about today we're talking about that shame that jesus bore for us and so um so yeah it's you know it was a great song and that's the song before that um talking about restoring our heart and um you know that's we're going to talk about that today as well so just grateful lord uh grateful for our worship team um give them a round of applause so today we yeah, we are in mark 14 we're finally finishing the chapter and it's been a good time in this chapter um but let's pray lord we are just grateful that you have brought us here tonight god that we get to be here we get to be in your word we get to study we get to fellowship we get to be in community lord with each other but god we pray that you would do a work in us lord if there's any of us god who are um feel stuck lord maybe we just need a refresher lord maybe we're a little dull god i pray that tonight we would be sharpened Lord that we would be challenged God that you would teach us that you would show us Lord um through your scripture God the different things that you want us to walk away with God and so Lord I just pray for everyone who's here God for you know the needs that are represented tonight and God I just pray that you minister to those needs tonight and God that we would be able to remember lord what it was that you endured for us god it's always great to be refreshed to remember to reflect to be grateful god even as we are approaching lord a season of gratefulness god that that's what we would be grateful for is for the cross is for your son is for what he did and so god i pray that we would walk away god tonight with a heart of gratitude so we thank you god and pray this in your son's name amen So we are in verse 53 to 72 but before we begin I think it's important to start with a little bit of background to what's going on. If we read this it's if it's your first time maybe going through the gospels or if you're like kind of, you know, like this is all new, maybe you've heard what happened at the cross maybe one time or maybe you just have a little bit of like, you know, you have all the pieces of what's happened but you just maybe don't know exactly what's going on or how it, the whole thing rolled out. And so um that's sometimes what happens when we read the events that led to Jesus's crucifixion. Sometimes these events blur together and sometimes we read and we're like, "Oh yeah, there was a trial." The reality was there was technically six trials that Jesus went through and there's nuances and differences between it and we're going to talk about that briefly. but i think it's important that we are clear before we dig into the bible study so if you didn't realize you're going to be in a history class for like a couple minutes so um at this time in history uh they had two high priests 
One appointed by the Roman government and the other one was recognized by the people. Um, Caiaphas was the high priest appointed by the Roman government and Annas was the high priest recognized by the people. Now the trials of Jesus were twofold. They were um, both by the Hebrew and Romans and it, or it was religious and civil. The Hebrew trials took, um, took place before Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, um, and the great Sanhedrin council uh, consisting of 70 to 72 members. Uh, the Roman trials were held under Pontius Pilate, which was the Roman governor of Judea. And then afterwards, um, uh, it was, he went, Jesus went before Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, which that basically means he's one of many leaders of, of Galilee. So these trials were linked like a chain and took place within a, a space of time estimated anywhere between 10 to 20 hours. And, um, and so now when we say Sanhedrin, um, the Sanhedrin was a judicious, uh, judicial council or assembly, um, the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jewish people in the time of Jesus. And so the Sanhedrin, again, composed of 70 to 72 members of the Jewish nation, and uh, they were also called the Great Sanhedrin. Um, so what is the Sanhedrin? Who are these people? Um, so they're Sadducees. We've heard that before. We've heard that word, um, which basically means chief priests and elders, and then Pharisees and scribes. So uh, these were the two main groups uh, within Judaism that, uh, that the Sanhedrin was made up of, and that was put together to maintain a balance of power. So... Just some background, just as we go through this, it's like we can, we don't have to park at all these things. Just want to give you all the history, um, you know, ahead of time. But Mark, going back to what we're going to be studying tonight, Mark did not record the preliminary trial before Annas, um, who was the real power behind the high priest's office. That's recorded in uh, John chapter 18, verses 12 through 13, and verses 19 to 23. Nor did Mark record the second trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the official trial, that's the official one, um, in daylight, the daylight trial, recorded in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71. Now, there are similarities between the trials because the same people were involved. And this is where I was saying like things kind of get muddied up and confused. Um, but here's the breakdown. This, if there's anything that you are going to walk away with is this breakdown right here, is upon his arrest, Jesus was first taken to An uh, Anus, Annas, sorry, then, <laughs> then to, uh, I'm not coming back after that, just so you guys know, <laughs> I, I got removed off the list, um, then, <laughs> you guys are bad. Then to an, an illegal night court of the Sanhedrin, which is what is described in the book of Mark, which was what we're studying tonight. Then, to, then it was the official daylight trial of the Sanhedrin. Um, then it was to Pilate, who uh, uh, to he, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and then Herod sent him back uh, to Pilate, and then that's when he basically was 
crucified and scourged and all of that. So that's kind of like the chain of events. Um, we are going to be, uh, in chapter 15, we're going to start getting into the crucifixion. Um, but right now, we are dealing with the trial, the illegal trial. Um, so that's the framework so we can begin. That was painless, right? A little painless history lesson for us. But we are going to be in, uh, we're actually going to read the entire portion that we're studying tonight just so that we can see the full picture and then we're going to just like, just knock it out piece by piece, okay? So in, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, the Sanhedrin. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple and that, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter war warming himself, he looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, not, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and, and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on him, on himself, and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. In our last verse, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus, how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So when we read this, we see some significant contrast that, popped, that pops out, and I'm sure they popped out to you. On one hand, um, we don't need a clear picture of, a man's, of man's sinfulness and the wickedness of men condemning a sin, the sinless son of God. And not only saying that he's a sinner, but he's deserving of death. So we have this extreme over here. Then we have the patience 
and love of Jesus, standing out as, as we see him endure the ridicule and the abuse that he, and, and everything that he was subjected to in this trial. And then we have another contrast. We have an unfaithful friend giving into the fear of man and not only uh, not confessing Jesus, but denying that he even knows him. And lastly, on another thing to contrast is that we see Jesus with boldness confessing before the mob that he is the son of God, the Messiah, which is the confession that sealed his death. And as we near the crucifixion, um, every scene that we come to in the gospel seems to be fulfilling the Old Testament. Things that were predicted long ago are being fulfilled now to the detail. There are many uh, descriptions given of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He said, he is said to be one who will crush the head of the serpent. Remember that? He's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to be a king after the lineage of David, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah says that he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. But Isaiah says something else that is striking about the Messiah. He says that, that the Christ will be the man of sorrows. But why? In Isaiah 53, 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom he, who men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When we think of the sufferings of Jesus, we sometimes automatically go to the cross. And rightfully so, when we think of the sufferings of Jesus, that was the height of his suffering. But Jesus is known as the man of sorrows because since the beginning he endured rejection and he was despised by his own people. He experienced great grief and those around him, instead of coming to his aid, they hid their face from him. He came to his own. Jesus came to his people as a savior and his people did not receive him as a savior. And this was true his entire life. Jesus was the one that endured many sorrows for us. And so as we look at verse 53, Jesus is standing before the religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin. And as Jesus is standing trial before these men, the reality is, is that the verdict was already made. They're just reverse engineering the whole thing so that they can find cause. They have been seeking the opportunity to kill Jesus all along, but why? On the surface, their disputes against Jesus revolved around the law. They wanted to portray an image of being zealous for God and his word or upholding their beloved traditions that have been passed down to them. But despite the show, the facade that they were putting on, they really just had a deep hatred for Jesus. I, we would say they sipped a little bit too much haterade. <laughs> but they did. I'm not lying. They claimed that they loved God and God was their father. And Jesus told them, if God is your father, then you would love me. 
And that, those type of responses just ticked off the religious leaders. It just, it threw them over the edge. And that was for, for Jesus saying those type of things is what made the religious leaders feel that they were losing the grip on the people, the influence that they had. And so we see that they are in the high priest's courtyard late at night, and this was during a feast, a time where they would never have a trial. So they are even going against the, own, the rules that they say that they're upholding. They're going against their own rules because they're just wanting to, do, to, to get their hands on Jesus. But the reality is, is that, we, that they had become blinded by their envy. And now we should focus to verse 54. We see that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. And while Peter is anxious to see where this is all going, he is wanting to keep a safe distance. So this is the scene that Jesus is in the high priest's home while Peter is outside. And he's trying to act all nonchalant, like nothing's going on, warming himself by the fire. I'm like, nothing to see here. Don't worry about me. I'm just part of the crowd. But he was hiding. But according to this account, the trial is going underway in verse 55. The whole, it says, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They had a plan all along to get him, to, and they had Jesus in their hands, finally. They got him. And they had this sense of urgency to finally seal the deal, but they couldn't find a charge against him that will stick. Now, the honest truth was that this was, uh, this is, that they had many testimonies. So finding a worthy accusation, it wasn't attributed to having, they didn't have enough uh, uh, accusations. It wasn't an issue of quantity of accusations, but it was the quality of the accusation. It just nothing, like, what, there was no sinking uh, of two testimonies or three testimonies. And that's what you needed. So, um, so instead, in verse uh, 56, it says, For many bore false witness against them, but their testimony did not agree. So they couldn't even lie right. Their lies, they're, they're, as they're trying to lie, they're like, dude, like, we can't even like, get, we can't even like, lie the right way. And there was no consistency, consistency with their lies. And, you know, it made me think about my kids. They're little. And they lie about each other. And they say, oh, he did this and she did that. And he hit me and he took my toy. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on with them. And it's like, dude, you guys are telling me two different stories. You're saying you're in this room and then you're saying it was this toy, but it was really that toy. And I'm just like, dude, like none of this is lining up. And the reality is, is that this is how childish they were, that they were trying to just, they couldn't even like, even, they couldn't even plan this ahead of time. Like, okay, I'm going to say this, and you're going to say this, and we're going to, like, it's like they couldn't even, like, plot this the right way. So they even resorted to using uh, their words against each other. And that is exactly what happened in verse 57 to 59. It says, and some stood up and bore fault witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made of hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet 
even about this, their testimony did not agree. And of course, this is misquoting what Jesus said. He at one time said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. But he wasn't talking about the temple of stone made by Herod the Great, which was the, the temple they were trying to talk about. He was talking about his own body. He said, I have the power to lay it down. No man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. So he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Context is everything. He was talking about his own body. And this is what the enemy tried to do to Jesus in the wilderness. He tried to twist the word of God to Jesus and Jesus knew the word and he was able to combat with the word of God. This is why it's important for us to know our word. This is why it's important for us to cherish the word and to read it and to study it. Because when the enemy tries to bring accusations against us, because that's what the enemy is, he's the accuser of man, he does that to us. He tries to twist things. And if we don't know what the word of God says, we are going to be deceived ourselves. But now we're going to see Things are going to get, in the words of Emerald, kicked up a notch here in verses 60 to 65. And it says, verse 60 to 65, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And this is, this is Caiaphas talking to the council. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. And so in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst. Now Caiaphas sees that this is starting not to bear the fruit that they were expecting it to bear. They thought, okay, like, we thought we had this in the bag, and this is certainly going in the wrong direction. So Caiaphas stood up, he's like, okay, I got to step up and I got to like put this pieces together because we're losing it. Um, Caiaphas knew that there was a limitation to the court he held. There was no authority to execute anyone. They had no power to take life. And so in order to kick this up to Pilate, who has the power, the accusation against Jesus had to be so great that the Roman leaders needed uh, to see Jesus as a threat to law and order. So now they're like, okay, if we can't get a testimony, our goal, my goal now is to make him sound not just a threat for us as the religious leaders, to make him, but to frame him as a threat to the Roman government. For, to paint him in a way and a light saying that Jesus is going to disrupt law and order. He's going he's to have riots and therefore it's in your best interest to get rid of this guy. Very wicked. And this is manipulation at its worst. 
So we see Caiaphas stand up and question Jesus directly. He wanted to get the job done. He asks, what is, what is it that these men testify against you? In other words, do you have any response? Assuming that Jesus had the desire to defend himself, which we know he did it, but they, they think that this tactic of self-incrimination would yield the results that they're looking for. And we see in verse 61 that Jesus remained silent. Jesus could have displayed a brilliant defense. He could have easily defended himself better than any lawyer alive. Calling forth, this is what he could have done. This is a small list of things he could have done. Calling forth all the various witnesses to him because that was what you needed in the court was witnesses. The people that he taught, he could have called them. The people he healed, he could have called them. The dead that had risen, he could have called them. The blind who see, he could have called them to come and testify. Even the demons themselves testify of his deity. But he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That was in Isaiah 53, 7. But now Caiaphas asks a direct question. I'm, he's like, okay, all this stuff, you're not answering. I'm going to just go straight and just ask you. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And we see Jesus' response in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is graciously and with warning says, I am. Jesus doesn't get fancy with his response, but answers it head on and reveals his identity and warns them of the judgment to come. He tells them who he is and the position he will assume as the son of God, the Messiah, yet they couldn't recognize that it was Jesus. Now, this, you would think that this would surprise them, but it didn't. They're like, they like, what? And so if we remember back in Matthew 23, 33, uh, chapter 23, verses 33 to 39, Jesus is talking sharply to the religious leaders. It says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So the one you may come, so, the, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then I 
wanted to include this next portion. It's a lament over Jerusalem in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So these men who are condemning Jesus right now stand before Jesus as judge. And that role will soon be reversed. And that's what, that's what was in Jesus' response back. And the violence that they seek to inflict on Jesus, if they don't repent, will come and return back on their heads if the, if the religious leaders don't repent. And so this is a warning to us about the sin in our lives. That we will too answer for the sins in our lives that go unanswered. We get the opportunity to respond to the weighty things that Jesus presents to us. What is your response to Jesus when he reveals himself to you? And that's what he did. He revealed himself. This was a moment. This was the moment that the religious leaders could have turned back in their tracks and just let the whole thing go. But they didn't. They, if, if anything, they doubled down on their position. But for us, let's put them off to the side. But for us, how many times have we heard the gospel? How many times have we presented as Christ as our Savior? How many times have we been challenged about sin in our lives? How many times has Jesus given you the way out, but we haven't taken it? How many times have we known that what we're doing or what we're about to do is not pleasing to God? How many times have we been given the opportunity to respond to him, but we chose to look the other way? I've, I've done that. I'm not saying that in a way that it's like I'm pointing the finger. I too, myself, have chosen sometimes to look the other way instead of being, taking the challenge that, that Christ is giving me. In verse 63 to 64, we see how the high priest responds to what Jesus said. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. In Caiaphas' mind, he got what he needed to escalate the issue. And, and what he did, he tore his garment to sell it. That's really what it was. I mean, the, the whole significance of tearing your garment is expressive of how deep of uh, offense you have toward something. And it really, I thought of, when I was a kid, the soap operas, you know, the Spanish soap operas, the telenovelas, and how dramatic they are. And I can't help but just think that when I see it. I don't take it seriously. I, there was no genuineness in this reaction, but it was, I thought it was just like, oh, sh I, I would not do that here. <laughs> but it was, to me, I was like, this is a very dramatic way of trying to sell 
the fact that you're offended. And, uh, and so, but having the verdict, uh, that wasn't enough. They, so they got the verdict, they got what they needed, right? That wasn't enough. That's all they were looking for is was for a reason to, con- to get the confession and then to move on. But we see what happens. It's very sad. The hatred and the envy was so deep that we read in verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They put a cover on Jesus' head and started to beat him. First off, this was unnecessary. There he got the confession. Why? It was evil. To treat anyone like this is wrong. But to do it to the only sinless and blameless person is just wrong. For me, when I read this, it made me reflect on boxing. If, if like, life, they, we say life is like a vapor, right? But my time in boxing was quicker than that. <laughs> Believe it or not, I wasn't boxing. <laughs> I came, I'm going to tell you a little story about that. I came to my second training in boxing. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of excited. Boxing was huge in our family. Now, I don't know what happened to boxing. It's like dead. Um, but I came into my training, my second day, and there's this guy who has had many fights, under his, many fights under his belt, and he was training. So that day, they're like, okay, let's try something out. Let's see what you got. And I was like, okay, cool. I put my headgear, gloves, and, this, and the, the stipulation of the spar match that we had was he's on defense only, and you are free to hit him. I was like, okay, cool. I got the advantage here. And, um, but then the caveat that I didn't know, I found out last minute, was the last 30 seconds of the round, he was able to hit back. And I was like, oh, shoot. All right, I better be quick. So I start, you know, so I start, and I'm hitting him, and the dude's quick. He was quick. I, I couldn't land a punch. And that was the whole point of the exercise was for him to navigate defending himself without being hit and without punching back. So he was trying to get his defense. I don't know if I really contributed to really make him because he was like, I was like, dude, he's everywhere. I can't even land my eyes on him. And so, um, but the funny thing is when the trainer looked away, uh, when the trainer looked away, he would throw some punches, and it was, I was like, hey, that's not, what's going on? And the trainer was, like, acting like he didn't know what was going on. But I think he did. He was trying to give, he was, you know, just trying to give his fighter some cover. And he just starts hitting me. And then you hear the clack, clack, or whatever, you know, 30 seconds. And then he goes off on me. And I'm, like, running. I'm covering myself. He goes for my kidneys. I cover my body. He hits my face. I cover my face. Then he uppercuts me, and I'm just like, is it was horrible. I didn't even finish the three rounds. I pulled myself out. I was like, this is unfair. This is cruel and unusual punishment. I, I want my money back. This was horrible. And I never went back again. I'm serious. I just, I'll stick to my scrappy street fighting method. Like, I don't need to have, like, proper technique. Um, <laughs> it, it was... 
it was crazy. So, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm like thinking, I'm like, I was trying to train and I got beat up and I had the gear and all of that. And Jesus didn't have any of that. He had, he was covered. He didn't see the punches coming. If you've seen a fight, a boxing match, back those old school boxing matches where it was a real fight, they would, they were, they were all beat up. They're, they, you, you, MMA fights too. You see these like contusions, these big bumps, and you can recognize the guys when they're fighting. Sometimes their skin's cut, and like they're they're literally trying to like keep the skin up so they can continue fighting, and they're bleeding out. And it's sometimes so much so that you're like, I don't even want to watch this. I can't. It's just gross on how sickening, how beat up these guys are. I say, I'm, I'm getting to a point why I shared this whole, this whole story. <laughs> but the damage was so severe that, um, that you couldn't recognize Jesus. It was that severe. And so in Isaiah 52:14 in the NLT, um, it says, but, when, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Jesus was unrecognizable. So now we see a switchback to Peter. And this is a flashback of what Peter was doing during the trial. So don't, as you read this, you could think like, okay, you know, Jesus got, you know, he was getting beat up. And then we switched to Peter. Really what's going on, it's like we're kind of flashing back to what was going on with Peter during the trial, okay? So we'll read our last set of verses, uh, 66 to 72. And it says, and as Peter was below in the, courtyard, in the courtyard, one of the serving girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the serving girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on him, on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said, said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. Sometimes, something to think of is that back then, like sometimes we, we read the Bible and we, indirectly or, or layering like things that we don't even realize to like bring to understand the Bible. Sometimes something to think about is that back then they didn't have street lights. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have, you know, the lights we have out in our building outside of the worship center. We're lighting the building. You can see, you know, the different things and it's well lit outside, right? That didn't exist back then. It was dark. So, um, so it was very easy to hide in the shadows at night. But Peter, he was near a fire. So that was how he was able to be identified, right? 
Now, the reason, like, that had nothing to do with, like, just, it was just something, never mind. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, you know what? It's pretty dark. Never mind. Now, the reason that Peter's denial is significant uh, is because of an earlier conversation recorded in Matthew 26, 30 to uh, 35. This is when Jesus foretells Peter's denial. So that's why what is happening is so important because it's connected to basically what Jesus said. And it says in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I touched on that verse last week. We're talking about the garden and the scuffle and everything happened and the disciples ran. That was that verse. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Gung-ho they were. So Peter made a commitment that he was not ready to keep. Peter denied Jesus three times in an effort to self-preserve. And yes, even though this portion is speaking of Peter's failure, this is what this whole section is labeled, Peter's denial. The bigger focus is Jesus. As Jesus is being accused, mocked, and ridiculed by his haters, he was also forsaken by his friends. We too sometimes have moments where we forsake Jesus even as believers. I want you to think about that for a second. That even as believers, we have moments where we forsake Jesus. I don't, we're here tonight and we're here for a reason. And the reason is to be challenged. You know, sometimes we're, we come to church every day, but we have to be honest with ourselves sometimes. It's like, am I, am I a cause of some of the suffering of, that Jesus is going through? We all have attributed to the sufferings of Jesus. All of us have. All of us. Even my little kids, who I love, them too. They're not perfect, but I love them. All of us have attributed to the sufferings of Jesus. And we too, like Peter, we see this and we read this and we think like, oh, like how could he do that? But we too forsake Jesus in moments Weak or weak moments. And so, I th we can try and learn from Peter if we're wise. We too can and should admit our weaknesses, either to each other, to our loved ones, but we should admit our weaknesses to each other or else we're going to fall. I think we can all empathize with Peter. We were, we were sincere in our promises to Jesus. We do love the Lord. We did really intend to do the right thing. In fact, we thought that we would stand up for the right thing. 
And we didn't. We fell. Going back to the garden, the spirit was indeed ready and willing, but man, our flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. I am challenged on a daily basis. We all are challenged on a daily basis. How can we not be challenged on a daily basis in this fallen world? Let's just be real and then say like, yes, we go out there and there's, we go out the parking lot and someone cuts us off. We're weak. How is it though that Peter failed so miserably? First of all, there's four things that we see in how Peter failed. First of all, he was trusting in himself. Beware of self-confidence. The Bible says, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Beware of the boasting of yourselves that what you're going to do for God or what you're not going to do for God. Don't boast in what it is that you claim you're going to do in the Lord's name. Just do it. Second, the, the second failure or reason for failure was, which we didn't read about here, but we studied last week that they were sleeping in the garden. But the second failure that carries over into this portion was that he was sleeping when he should have been praying. He wasn't prepared for the battle that he was about to go into. We talked about that last week, that you win your battles through prayer. The battle, you don't win the battle in the battlefield, you win it in the prayer closet. And so, because, Jesus, because Peter failed in his prayer life, he failed when it was t- that time, the critical moment to stand. Jesus had said, men ought always to pray and not faint. How often, when faced with a difficult situation, we faint instead of praying. Sometimes we say, oh, I can't, it's terrible, this is just too horrible, this is too much. And then we don't even pray and then we faint. We just fall into our issue and we don't even like pray about it and we just walk around with this, these issues in our lives, the, you know, our kids' school situation, our work situation, our interrelationships or the sister that you avoid to see every single day or every time you come to church and you go the, the other door or whatever and you just have all these different things that you're not even praying about, they're going to catch up to you because you're not giving them to the Lord. So the place of prayer is a place of power. The third reason for his failure, Peter's failure, he was warming himself at the enemy's fire. The moment you seek to find comfort or warmth at the fire of the enemy, you're placing yourself in real jeopardy. What does that mean? There are certain places that you as a child of God have no business being at. There are places and there are things that may seem exciting or may give us warmth, but it's the enemy's fire. You can be sure that when you do that, you're headed for defeat. And the final reason 
is that Peter sought to follow the Lord afar off. That you cannot do. You've got to stick close by. You've got to be identified with him all the way. You can't have a long-distance Christian relationship. God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. So that means that you have a close relationship with him. You have to have your own personal close relationship with him. Otherwise, you're going to fall away. You can't say you're a Christian and commune with him at a distance. You've got to stick close by. Now, what is the key about this regarding Peter, since we're ending with Peter? It's how he responded to his failure. In verse 72, it says, he broke down and wept. In Peter, we see the grace of repentance simply by the way he responds to his mistake. Paul says that this kind of sorrow, the sorrow that Peter was feeling in that moment, is the sorrow that leads to repentance, that helps us to seek forgiveness. In comparison, when you read through the Gospels, you don't encounter a moment where Judas was repentant or sorrowful. He will forever be tied, Judas, to his greatest mistake. That's his claim to fame. It's his mistake. But Peter, he's not remembered for his mistake because Jesus used Peter mightily to build the church Peter played a key role in the church. And how did that happen? It's because later, not in this book, but later, Jesus restores Peter. And that's what I was talking about, that other song that was talking about the Lord restores our heart. That is truly what he does. We see this example in Peter that Jesus restored Peter's heart. The reason being is that Peter's heart was still in the right place. He meant well, he did love Jesus, but his heart was, was still tender and responsive to the things of God. And Judas wasn't. Now, we can invite the worship team to come up, but now I believe that some have come here tonight and are bearing the weight of the mistakes or sins that we may be in right now. Maybe we feel stuck because we don't know how Jesus feels towards us right now. Sometimes that's the biggest trap that we're in. That was the trap that Peter was in. He wept, he was sorrowful, he made a mistake, and he didn't know how Jesus felt toward him. All of these things that Jesus went through, the, the, the scourging, the whipping, the beating, the spitting, the plucking of the beard, all of, this, all of that that he endured, yet he still loved us through it. He did that because he loved us. And at that moment, Peter was ashamed and he ran and he let his shame overpower him. 
because of a mistake he made. And so tonight is that night that if you've been walking around with this thing, this this situation that you made a mistake in, a sin, whatever it may be, you don't have to tell anyone what it is because the reality is it doesn't matter what it is between us. God knows exactly what it is, that thing, that mistake. And so tonight, if you have this shame, this overbearing feeling of, of a, that, you, that Jesus doesn't want to take me back. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm a failure. That's not how Jesus sees you. We see, even though this chapter ends sadly, at the time, Peter had no visibility of what was going to happen. But we can read and we know that Jesus comes and restores Peter privately and publicly. But it was Peter's heart that Jesus had to work with. He had something to work with. Do you, is your heart in that place that God can still work with you? It's like, look, you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The Bible says we're gonna all fall short short of the glory of God. But it's, do we get back up when we fall. And so tonight, I want to give you that opportunity to get up from wherever. I mean, physically, yes, but figuratively as well. Get up from this hole that you're in and come forward. Tonight, you're in the right place. Maybe you're watching online. And as you're watching online, maybe that's why you're watching online because you don't want to come in. You don't want to be seen. So whichever camera I'm looking at, you online. <laughs> there's, a, there's someone online engaging with you, engage with them and ask for prayer. So, and second, Jesus wants to wipe away that burden from you tonight. He really does. He did that for me. November 11th, 12, 2012, in the chapel. I remember the day I gave my life to the Lord. It was, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But God broke my heart. He showed me my sin. He showed me that there was a way out. And he made a way, uh, the, the path possible for me. And that is the opportunity you have tonight. Don't be stuck in your mistakes. Don't be stuck in your sin. Come and allow yourself to be unburdened with the sin. And start a new relationship or pick back up where you left off. And so, if that's you tonight... I want to ask you to come forward and be bold. If you need to be restored, if you need a a work in your life, in your heart, I want to ask you to come forward and that we can pray for you. And I'll lead you in a prayer and then we can have the follow-up team minister to you. But if that's you, come forward right now. I'm going to...
lead you guys in a sinner's prayer, a prayer of repentance. And that's, if that's what you need, just follow after me. Lord, I give my life to you. I acknowledge my sin against you. I believe you sent your son to die on the cross for my sin. You say if I trust your son, that you will save me from my sin. Lord, I trust in your son. I trust in your promises. And you said, if I believed in your son, you would give me eternal life. I believe in your son. God, I give my life to you. And I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I pray these things in your son's name.